Hey, welcome to the first episode of Increasing Human Agency, a podcast brought to you by Agency Enterprise, where we build things that increase human agency. This was recorded at a live event between two of our resident data scientists and the CEO of CPGD, a directory of consumer packaged goods. We hope you enjoy the episode. So I'll introduce myself and then I'll introduce these guys and they can go into more depth about themselves. But uh, I'm Andrea, I'm the current CEO of CPGD, which is the Consumer Packaged Goods Directory. And uh, some of you may not know what it is, but basically it's an online platform to discover new brands in the consumer packaged goods space. So any packaged good that's sold online and it's digitally native. And the way I started at CPGD was I was basically just a fan uh, a few years ago when it first started. And this this guy named David built it because he's a designer and he thought something beautiful should exist to capture these brands. And I was obsessed. I would send it to everyone I knew, all the investors that I knew in the space. And then three years later, uh, after working in the e-commerce space, I had previously been a consultant at Walmart. I had worked uh, at Pros, And then I was working at a job that I was miserable at and it was not in e-commerce. And I felt like I had totally fallen off my path. I was super, super miserable and just felt like, what am I doing with my life? And then the investor of CPGD called me and he had never talked to me before. And he said, hey, I saw your your blog online where you talk about brands. Do you want to run this company? And that is how I became the CEO of CPGD, the only employee a full time. And we still work with the founder. But uh, but yeah, basically, I write the newsletter that you read. I do the social media posts that you see. And I'm trying to build it into more than just a directory of brands, but to be continued on that. So that is how that happened. So just keep chasing your dreams is the (laughs) thing there. But um, basically, I'm here today because I have worked a lot in data and analytics and products. And I believe that consumer brands today have a huge opportunity to leverage the power that data uh, allows you to harness and use to further your business goals. So... I uh, am partnering with AE Studio, which I think is a great agency that, like Judd says, um, has a lot of the best talent in data and product, and they do a lot of the things that I really believe in in consumer. And I'm so excited to, (laughs) these two guys are amazing data scientists, Arun and Evan, and they are here today to share their experiences in data science and how you can further your business goals with data science. Uh, Arun studied statistics and computer science at Berkeley, a legend, and has worked in data <laughs> science now at AE Studio for a bit now. And then Evan is has degrees from Princeton, from UIUC, and is now the EVP of data science at AE Studio. So I will let them introduce themselves, but give them a warm welcome. Yeah, so hi everyone. I'm Arun, I'm a data scientist and technical product manager here at AE. And I also meet with entrepreneurs and growth stage companies and even enterprise companies. And I help them understand the real big pain points that they're currently dealing with, the high priority items that they need to get through, and how data science can help solve those issues. I first started my data science journey uh, back in Berkeley, applying data science to social good. So doing things like building a water alarm email notification system that warns schools when their water systems are contaminated, analyzing electricity production data and things like climate change metrics uh, to understand how we can improve American energy policy um, and working uh, with the school in equity and inclusion and testing to see, yeah, are we actually going towards a more inclusive education system and how can we use data to get there? From there, I've worked in a variety of spaces, uh, doing financial modeling, 
and then also working with CPG-type brands, um, doing things, especially in the art of personalization. So how do you target your various uh, customer personas and give them really the best products and the best value for the service that you're offering them? Very excited to be here today and to kind of share some of our perspectives on data science and how it can be applied to consumer products. Yeah, and thank you for, for coming. Uh, Ev, you want to go? Sure. Um, I'm Evan, and I've been playing around with data science since long before there was a term data science to discuss. My data science journey started around 2005, back when Moneyball was a movie, not a movie by Brad Pitt, but a book by Michael Lewis. And I had this uh, senior thesis idea that I wanted to write an algorithm to forecast the outcome of baseball games so I could wager upon them. And this required a set of technical skills that I did not possess at the time. And as many of you may be want to do, I hired a consultant. Now, I didn't have a lot of money, so my, the consulting wage I could afford to pay was as much pizza as it would take for him to write the code. So as long as he was writing code, he was supplied with pizza. This young man would go on to get a PhD in quantum physics from Stanford, so, you know, I, I had at least a little bit of an eye for talent, and now he works for AE. So I'm just an articulate chimp compared to this individual. But he and I collaborated to write an algorithm to forecast the outcome of baseball games before I ran off to graduate school in Illinois in environmental engineering. Sometime around this time, two college classmates came up to me and they said, hey, do you want to go start a hedge fund? You invested in your baseball model when you invested about $2,000, which to you felt like all the tea in China. You want to play the real game with a couple of zeros on the end of it. And I was you know, in my early 20s and I had no spouse and no real responsibilities. So fine, I'll surreptitiously fly from Champaign, Illinois to New York and back so my advisor doesn't know that I'm gone. And then eventually we started a hedge fund. But I didn't have the greatest sense of timing. Our first day of live trading was September 2nd, 2008. For those of you who know your history, Lehman Brothers going bankrupt was September 15th, 2008. And Merrill Lynch and you know being bought out by Bank of America, this was all the first three weeks of our live trading. So good idea, bad timing. I describe this part of my life as playing poker on the Titanic. You could be a decent poker player, but you're on the Titanic, which led me to do two things. One, get out of New York. Two, go back to grad school in Illinois to chase a woman I was falling in love with who is now my wife. So that worked out well. Yeah. So I wound up doing a lot of agricultural modeling and research for John Deere, who was just starting to discover, hey, you know, all these machines we have roaming around the agricultural midwaste are also data generating engines, and we should probably do something with them. But that also led me to work for the USDA, doing some postdoctoral work in a collaboration with NASA. You wouldn't think that USDA, the group that digs holes, and NASA, the group that launches satellites, would have much to do with one another, but they do. And so there was a lot of data problems to work through there. And then, again, I have a sense of timing in life. Around 2016, my grant ran out. Now, I don't want to wax political for this audience. I don't know what everybody thinks and believes. I will tell you that being an earth scientist during the election of 2016 was a terrible way to try to make a living, which led me away from the government and into the private sector, where I found myself at a professional services firm. And I ultimately became their global head of advanced analytics. So I was doing, I think, things that are probably nearer and dearer to the hearts of the people in the room, user classification, understanding how clients spend, understanding patterns of customers, understanding the ROI on data initiatives, talking to the CMO about whether the marketing spend was doing what they thought. And then the guy who I used to sell pizza to in exchange for his coding services, who was a dear friend and still is a dear friend for almost two decades at this point, said, you know what, you got to join AE. And so I did. And here I am. And that's my data science story. The most applause I've ever gotten for anything data science related. In so we have some questions for both of you uh, that we prepared that we think are relevant for some of the founders in the audience and, and just questions uh, about CPG in general. But I was wondering to start off, if we're nimble and small companies, typically at the seed stage, how should we think about investing in data science and the costs and benefits that come with that? 
the first question I always start to ask is, what is the opportunity size we're ultimately discussing? And I'll tell a couple of stories along the way. When I was in New York with the two other guys and we were working at the startup hedge fund, we noticed a small issue in one of our models in our code. And we discovered that there was a possibility that about one in 10,000 trades would go awry. Company makes about 20,000 trades a year. Each of them are a few thousand bucks a piece. We're managing a few million dollars. This seems scary until you do the back of the envelope math and you realize that your good trades are right 52% of the time. So your bad trades are right about 48% of the time. And this entire giant mathematical model problem costs you about $400 a year. How many of you startup founders want to spend a lot of time looking for $400 under the cushions of your couch, right? If, it, if you can find it in 10 minutes, fantastic. If you're going to spend weeks on it, it's a bad use of everybody's time, right? So the first step is, do I need to solve this problem? Spring forward 10 plus years, and I was involved with a marketing initiative at the professional services firm, where the goal was to take a bunch of people consuming free content online and cross-sell them into you know, paid subscription products and whatnot. And we figured, you know what, for this type of customer, if we were to manage a 10% conversion rate, and by the way, if anybody can get a 10% conversion rate, you should be the ones talking up here because nobody's ever done that. It would turn out to be a revenue stream of about, I don't know, $60,000 a month in a business that makes between 500 million and a billion dollars a year. In other words, again, bad use of time. So question one, before you start thinking about the data science investment is, what is the opportunity size you're chasing? And then Arun has some ways to sort of drill down on that. Yeah, I guess, um, okay, you've selected your problem. And now what's the first step? How do you actually use data science to build value for your customers? Obviously, the first step is to get some data. Um, so my first advice to all of you would be be as greedy as possible about collecting, gathering, and aggregating data, especially data that comes from your product. So anytime you can track analytics, any user actions, any behavior during the entire customer lifetime, you need to track it. Once you do that, then the question is, how do I start building data science to use that data? And a lot of times these days, you'll hear buzzwords like AI, machine learning, and it's very exciting. There's a tremendous amount of opportunity and value in this field. But the first step when you're a scrappy, early stage company obsessed with your customers and trying to make money as fast as possible, start with a simple set of static rules from your domain and apply that onto your data. What does that mean? Okay, I know that I sell, say, a sleeping product, okay? I know what the core problems are for my customers. I'm now tracking information on these customers. I can even ask them questions about their sleep and their health and other things about their demographic, lifestyle choices. And with that data, you know, if, if I'm an expert in my field, then you can figure out, okay, what are some rules? Like people that are struggling with this issue should get these products. People that are struggling with this issue should get these products. Now there could be, and very likely, there are personas out there that you don't yet know about. And so that's where after you've kind of highlighted the ones that you do know about, you can go out there and collect additional data, things to enrich your existing customer data um, so that you can find these new personas and start capturing them as well. The, the only follow-up I would add is, and I'll tell another little story from my data science past. About six years ago at this time, I was not sitting with sophisticated, well-dressed professionals in Los Angeles. I was in the hinterlands outside of Tombstone, Arizona, taking soil samples and digging holes. I was much worse stressed. And one of the things you come to realize when you go through this experience is there's the kind of data you can collect retroactively and the kind of data you can't. So if I ask you what the price of corn was six years ago, you go online, you look it up on a financial you know, derivatives website, you go look at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, easy. I ask you what the weather was somewhere six years ago. You know there's a database that's gonna have that information for you. 
If I asked you how moist the topsoil was somewhere outside of Tombstone, Arizona six years ago, well, you better hope that somebody gathered that information because there's no chance you're going back and finding it, right? So I think part of the, the journey is figuring out what you're never gonna be able to access retroactively, which is probably how your customers experience something in the moment. Any of those details that are lost to history once they elapse, that's where you have to be greedy, thoughtful, and a little bit sort of proactive about making sure you don't lose data that you'll never be able to reclaim. And just as someone who's worked a lot with the data from an analytics perspective, like it is important to also have that data be as organized and clean as possible because then it's much more helpful for the end users as you scale. So having data for scale is also really important. But what do you think about the fact that a lot of these brands at the smaller scale are focused a lot on their branding and making sure that their marketing is as polished as possible? But how do you think about branding and data used together? And how can they be used more effectively to help a brand grow? The way I look at this for using data analytics to grow a brand is, you know, you start with the process of, I have a handful of personas who I imagine would be interested in this kind of product. And this sort of is the way you start. But at a certain point, what data gives you the ability to say is, are those really the groups of customers I think I have? I spent a lot of time at the professional services firm thinking in terms of, can I cluster people in terms of how often they buy, how much they buy, what suite of products do they buy, and then I can put them into groups. And then when I use data science to put them into groups, I can ask more specific questions. What's the lifetime value of somebody in this group? How much does it cost me to acquire a customer in this group? Which of these groups do I have any ability to influence? We had certain types of groups of customers that were like annuities. They would buy the exact same amount every month. They liked the product, but they knew exactly what they wanted. And come hell or high water, there was nothing we were going to do to change that. So you don't invest your resources in it. And then from there to think about the brands, I think about sort of four things you can do that data science can help you inform. You can acquire new customers. You can get your existing customers to spend a little bit more money. You can upsell them and you can cross-sell them. You can improve your churn by improving your retention, keep the customers you have. And then you can try to resurrect people who've done business with you in the past who have been lost and now you're gonna to try to reclaim them. And those are the four things you can do. And what data science helps you do is understand, A, what is the ROI in each of those four things? And actually, which of those four things am I any good at? Because oftentimes it turns out to be the case that you're great at doing one of those four things and not great at the other three. And that sort of informs how you focus your efforts. In building mm -hmm. Yeah, and a couple of follow-up points to that. Within each of these personas, we have different ROI for these different lovers that you can pull. There are some users who are diehard fans, but they love your product. They get exactly what they want from buying your products and goods. And at the same time, they're not interested in being upsold to, in being cross-sold to. So you can use data to look at their user behavior, quantify it, and measure, and figure out which personas do I have the most cross-sell opportunity for? Which ones are the ones that are least likely to churn? Which ones are on a threshold and might churn, but then there's a potential to resurrect them? And maybe if I can find the customer support reasons following, again, the whole lifetime journey, for why they churned, and I, if I can solve it for those customers, I can win them back. So I just wanted to highlight that. And then a few more things. One is data is the unique asset that compounds in value as you collect more. But the problem is when you're very scrappy, you're starting out small, it's a cold start problem. You don't have the data on these personas. Uh, you don't have the tons of reams of data points for you to quantitatively analyze them. However, qualitative data is still data. In fact, you know, doing user research, interviews, uh, surveys, getting those insights about your users, can, you can still start with that even before you start tracking the full user journey. Um, and also, qualitative data can be analyzed with analytical methods from data science. So using natural language processing to understand 
the customer support reasons that your customers are reporting to understand why they like your product. Um, and then using that to tighten your marketing and brand development um, is like definitely one thing that data science can do as well. Cool, yeah, it sounds like data science really amplifies the voice that you're already building with the branding. So that's awesome. Um, so who in this room is a founder? Any founders, founders? Okay, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> of, of the founders, who is a technical founder? Like you have a technical background and yeah? Okay, go. a few people. Um, well, for people who are maybe non-technical and maybe they're trying to find out what tech stack to purchase to build their brand or like what data scientists to hire, how should they think about choosing the right data scientists? Like how do they even hire the right talent or uh, choosing the right tech stack to begin with? Yeah, so uh, one thing about choosing the tech stack is, um, one thing is each business is unique. Your needs, your architecture, what infrastructure you should build, what data you should collect, which KPIs and metrics matter to you, very specific to your domain, your industry, and your business. And so the best way to build the best tech stack for your business is to find someone who's an expert in tech stacks, ideally familiar with your industry as well, or someone who's very open to learning more about your industry and getting their guidance, getting their help in selecting it. But then the question is, how do I find this person? How do I find this technical person who's gonna come in, give me everything I need to know, truly understands my needs and the needs of the business and will actually build it from there. Yeah, so there's always the challenge of, you know, how do you choose the right tech stack, which means choosing the right people, which then comes to the question of how do I choose the right data scientists? And I'm gonna preface this by saying everybody has an inherent bias in this question, because if you ask a data scientist, how do I hire a great data scientist? Inevitably, the answer you're going to receive is something along the lines of, how could I hire you? How do, how do I find people like you? What are the things that would be, right? They inevitably give their own biases on what makes a great data scientist, which typically describes themselves to some extent. And I don't know how to avoid this particular bias, but I'll give it a shot. There's a couple of elements here. The first one is the bait on the hook for any data scientist is, well, the data, right? So I spent a bunch of years working for John Deere in graduate school because they had all of these machines gathering all of this data and it was incredibly exciting, except the combines are owned by private citizens and the private citizens own the data on their combines. And you know, if an SVP of John Deere can't get their hands on this, the precocious 20-something graduate student screaming into the wind somewhere in Champaign, Illinois is assuredly not getting that data. And after three years of trying to put together a dissertation with those type of constraints, you get frustrated. And then you find the government, and the government has you know, the US Climate Reference Network and the National Climatic and Environmental Informatics Center, and they have the USDA and NASA, and you chase the data. So to appeal to data scientists means giving them access to the interesting problems and the interesting data sets and the things that get them excited. And from there, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll steal the Cliff Notes version of Elon Musk's mechanism for hiring people, but it turns out to be true, which is you've got to dig into the problems they've solved. It turns out not to be a question of mathematical acumen in a lot of cases, but the kind of people who are willing to dig incredibly deeply to solve the problems. And those people, if you ask them to geek out about the problems they've solved and the pitfalls they've run into and the mistakes they've made, they will talk to you for two hours about it with their eyes lit up, and it will be the most interesting conversation they've had. They'll be incredibly excited, and you'll know. Right? That's ultimately the mechanism. I wish there was some secret sauce to finding data scientists. I'm sure there's lots of companies who wish there was one, us included. But I think that's my best attempt to sort of articulate that answer. Yeah, definitely. Um, and data scientists, do you love data? So that's an easy way to attract them, I have to say. And when it comes to evaluating technical skills, the thing is, like to Ev's point, I think data science really is general problem solving. How do I take a domain, deconstruct it, and reconstruct it under a data science framework? Almost every problem can be transformed in this way, and thinking, looking for people that are able to 
listen to you talk about your business for five minutes, really hear the problems that you're facing, and then tell you about techniques that they would borrow from the field of data science to help you. For example, my customers are not finding the right products for them. How do I get them those products? Well, there's techniques from personalization that you can use. It's not just about the algorithms, it's about which data is important to my customers and which data can be used to map them into individual products. And so usually taking it to a specific problem and seeing the way that they solve it um, is a great way to evaluate uh, your data scientists, even as a non-technical founder. Those were some of the questions that we thought would be relevant to you guys, but I would love to hear if anyone has any questions. Yeah, just, yeah. I've got one. Yeah. Okay, so Arun, you mentioned be greedy with your data, like try to get as much as you can. Are there any like obvious things that you've ever been like, oh, what the hell, like how are you not collecting this? All data? the time. We have so many stories. <laughs> we have so many stories. You know, like I used to work for a financial modeling company. We would use social media traffic to predict the revenue of companies and, and brands uh, next quarter, okay? One of those metrics, uh, things that we were tracking, a data source, was Google Trends. I think most of you are probably familiar with Google Trends. One thing, if you've noticed, is Google Trends is always between zero and 100. And so if there's a huge spike in the interest in a specific brand one day because of some TikTok video going viral that actually crashes, the, like you lose all the signal. Like you don't see the slopes, you don't see how things have changed over time. All you see is zero and then 100 one day and then zero after that. So as a financial modeling company, we have to back test all our algorithms. So we would, we thought, we, this is before I joined the company, so, <laughs> so it's not my fault, I swear. Um, but we thought that we were storing the Google Trends for these brands every single calendar day. Imagine our horror when two years go by, you get ready to backtest a model that you've been developing all this time, and you realize that data, the logging broke like a year ago, and you stopped saving it. So setting up the right monitoring, and by the way, I wanna say, Every data scientist makes this mistake at some point in their life. Like, yep. it haunts us at night. Um, <laughs> we'll take it to our graves, but it's a common thing. It's a hard problem, um, but it comes from just always thinking about what data you really need. And also that those needs can evolve over time. You know, as you scale, you'll need different types of data to enrich your other data and making sure that you're tracking everything. And going back to Ev's point, the biggest litmus uh, test is like, if, if it was a year from now, could you still get that data retroactively if you didn't collect it now? The answer to that question is no, you should probably be collecting that data. Any other questions? I want to drop the ethics question here. So like you're collecting a lot of data, you guys both come from great, you know, it's a social impact type of background. <laughs> now you're working with consumer product goods, you know, helping sell more things to consumers. Uh, where do you draw the line when it comes to like, you know, biases and data, data modeling, right, with your clients? And two, when it comes to, again, like, uh, yeah, the ethics around like, we're yeah. a certain client that wants to collect all the data mm -hmm. um, that probably be illegal, but yeah. you have to collect as much data as possible, right? So how do you guys deal with like that whole dilemma? I have right? two points there. One is the fact that you ask that question puts you in a much better spot than the vast majority of people out there up north in Silicon Valley. <laughs> so that's, first of all, congrats to you. Like definitely pat yourself on the back. Um, you'd be surprised how few people actually will ask a question like this. The second thing is you guys all make amazing products. Your products improve the lives of your customers. If it truly improves the lives of your customers, then customers appreciate when you use data that they generate to increase the value and happiness in their lives. I think back to Spotify, heavy, avid music fan and big user of Spotify. 
At this point, Spotify knows more about my music taste than any best, my best music friends, honestly. And it's so ingrained in my experience with the product, it's so personalized that I can actually, I can never churn from Spotify at this point. It knows so much about my taste and that information, that personalization, that hyper-targeted micro-personalization is so essential to my experience. And you know, I, I have a relationship with this product now. It knows me better than I know myself in some ways. So part of agency is giving your customers the choice, okay? Like you see regulation that's been coming out uh, with GDPR and things like that, where we want to put the onus on the user to choose, should I be tracked? Uh, and if I used to want uh, my data to be tracked, I should be able to get it back. You build your products with this human agency increasing perspective, they end up much happier. Wouldn't you be happier? Like maybe you'll churn from Spotify and use Apple Music because you've already destroyed your personalization there. I think the way I approach that question is sort of at what level of disaggregation, at what level of specificity is required to answer your question. So let me, let me give you an example. So I work for a company. The company wants to make certain statements about its user base or even, I'll go even one step further, how about about its employees? Right? Because companies track all sorts of productivity metrics internally, right? And that creates all sorts of ethics questions of like, how much do I really want to know about exactly what you're doing at your computer every day? Do I want to know if you took an extra five minutes to get coffee or go to the bathroom? Right? Like, there's a real ethical question. So it's, what is the question you're actually trying to answer? Overall productivity for time, time on an app, time using these tools. There is no reason for me to aggregate that data in any way that leads me to know a detailed person's behavior unless there's a specific question about their behavior pattern I need the answer to. So a lot of it goes back to what is the question I'm trying to answer, what do I need to answer the question, and what am I doing that sort of feels a little bit like it's above and beyond. That's kind of the way I think about that line. And, and, and it's the short answer, it's a complicated question, right? And, that, and you know, at AE we try to debate that a lot, right? I mean, we have internal discussions to hash those things out. It's, it's worthwhile. And I actually want to follow up on one thing uh, that Ev and I actually were talking about over lunch today. So when you're a scrappy early stage startup, you go for the data that, is, that you know is going to be valuable to you. In the short term or maybe in the long term, you know that you'll need it in the future. Uh, sometimes you might miss a few, that's life, we make mistakes. As companies scale, they start, and especially if, as companies, some tech companies, some product companies become data companies, really, where that's all their value. We know who we're talking about here. As you scale, you actually get so much incremental marginal value from your data, and your user base is so big that even if you make you know, fractions of a cent on making micro-optimizations for your user base by collecting much more data than they're actually really willing to give or consensually giving, for very large companies, you can skim off the top and make a lot of money that way. We, again, know people that do this, know companies that do it. But as a small company, when you're first starting out, you can actually focus on just your users and what they really need from your products and using data to get you there. Related to this, like companies like Function of Beauty that sort of base their products off of an algorithm and are making customized products, which a lot of companies are going towards, like, like a capsule or other companies like care of that are making personalized products, your value and your assets become so deeply ingrained in your data, like your data becomes your product itself. So to what you said, like it's very valuable to get more information about your customers early on. So I think we have time for like a one more question if you wanted to follow up. If I'm a small business and I'm putting out service and that's like pretty much the only way I'm collecting data, mm -hmm. uh, is there uh, like company that exists that can tell me the questions that will put it in the best format to like 
Yeah, I, well, I, I'm not a company, well, but I'll, I'll give you a, a few tips that I've learned over the years. One is I actually think that you want to ask questions to your users that are obvious to them to answer and minimal friction, mental friction for them to answer. So oftentimes, rather than asking someone to rate their satisfaction on a, on a scale of 1 to 10, asking them questions like yes or no questions. And you can even get qualitative answers, like can you describe your experience with this in the survey? And increasingly these days, natural language processing is commoditized. You ask questions that you are genuinely wondering about your customers. And whether that's qualitative or quantitative, there's now tools out there that let you analyze that data holistically. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, it's really hard to get away from really knowing your domain. Data is only valuable when it's mapped into your domain. And starting with a really good understanding of the industry that you're in, you know, even using classical business strategic methods, thinking about that, and then start thinking about the data in context of that. It's a great question. I actually don't know of an off-the-shelf solution that does exactly what you're looking for out of the box. <laughs> As you're asking this question, I'm like, gee, that's not the worst idea of something that's maybe somebody in this room should assemble one, because I'm not familiar with it. But yeah, I mean, I, I tend to agree with Arun that you're looking to ask questions where, the, where it's low friction for the user, where I generally like to have people rank preferences of things, because that sort of reveals their general. In other words, you create a ranking and you ask them to reveal their preferences, which is a little easier than like rate this from 1 to 10, which is a little more ambiguous. But yeah, I don't know of an off-the-shelf solution. If somebody else does, I'm, I'm happy to defer to the knowledge in the, in the crowd. And I guess kind of tying it back down to the problem that we're solving in their life um, and seeing, has that problem been solved? Does my product actually make them happier? Um, sometimes those simple questions can actually lead to a lot of good data to analyze later on. Thanks for listening to the first episode of Increasing Human Agency, a podcast brought to you by Agency Enterprise, where we build things that increase human agency. To learn more about CPGD, visit cpgd.xyz. And to learn more about Agency Enterprise, visit ae.studio.